0: We just got finished singing a, an old Christmas carol, an old Christmas song, What Child Is This? And that is the question that I want us to sort of focus the rest of our time in December on. What child is this? When we come to the Christmas season, what church historically is called Advent, we're counting down, we're anticipating the the birth of Christ, we're anticipating the birth of a baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And so I want us to answer that question, what child is this? What was so significant about that child that makes it worthy of all this? Who was that baby born in Bethlehem? Now, we will certainly not exhaust the answers to that question in the next few weeks Uh, There are many, many answers that could be uh, given as we seek to answer that question, what child is this? But I want us to try in the next two weeks at least to focus our attention on an important Christian theological principle. And and, and it sort of has a lineage of thought to it. So when we celebrate Christmas, what we're actually celebrating is what we call the incarnation. The incarnation, Now that's a word if you've grown up in Christian circles, you've probably heard a lot about, but sometimes we don't really know the, the etymology or where that word came from. And the word incarnation comes from a Latin word which simply just means to take on flesh. And uh, you'll notice throughout church history, throughout world history, there isn't a lot of opportunities to talk about something taking on flesh outside of Christ. And so it's sort of come to be exclusively referred to as Christ taking on flesh. Just, it's just more of a generic word to take on flesh, but its usage is primarily only used to talk about Christ taking on flesh. So Christmas is celebrating the Incarnation, and the Incarnation is taking on a flesh. But we could ask the question, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that Christ took on flesh? So to understand the Incarnation rightly, we have to understand another theological word that's known as the hypostatic union, That's one of those words that when you're at a party with your secular friends, you can throw it out and and sound really smart. The hypostatic union, right? What is that? Well, that's what we're going to study this week and next week. To understand Christmas, you need to understand the Incarnation, and to understand the Incarnation, you need to understand the hypostatic union. We just professed it in the Ligonier statement pretty clearly. The hypostatic union is essentially this. It's a union of two natures, (laughs) It's somebody who is God marrying, becoming, having a finding union with man. That somebody who was God took on flesh, took on humanity. So the hypostatic union is, is the, the theological phrase for the shorthand that we will sometimes refer to Jesus as we will call him the God man. Because one of the things we're going to see next week especially is in this study of the hypostatic union is the hypostatic union is not a mixing. It's not a a blending. It's it's not like colors, right? You get one color and you get a second color and you put them together and you've got a new color. That's not the hypostatic union. God did not mix with man and sort of produce a demigod. That's not the hypostatic union. It wasn't a mixing. It's also not a math problem. It's not two halves creating a whole. Half of divinity met with half of a man and now we have a full man. The hypostatic union is someone who has a divine nature who is fully God taking on full humanity. So now what we have is not a demigod or a quasi man quasi God. We have someone who is simultaneously both God and man. He is the God man. That's what the hypostatic union is. That's what the incarnation is. And even though there is inevitably some mystery and profundity that's beyond us in this, the scripture reveals this with a remarkable clarity. And so if you would open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to spend the next two weeks to break up the hypostatic union in its two phases. And so today we're going to set aside the the humanity of Christ because that shows up in Hebrews chapter 2. Today we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1 and so let me just give you the thesis of this sermon up front. What's the goal of the text today? What we're going to see in the text is simply this, Jesus Christ is fully God. What child is this? Who, what was so significant about that baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago? Well, here's one of the things so significant about that baby is that baby was fully 100% God. God. God was born in Bethlehem. And that is what we are going to see in Hebrews chapter 1. But let me just give a, although we're not introducing a whole, uh, philo, we're not doing a sermon series on Hebrews, let me, it's, it's important for us to understand the thought, to get a little bit of background information on Hebrews. Uh, the book of Hebrews is written as an apologetic. We've talked about that word in Sunday school. That comes from a Greek word which means A defense. And an apologetic is when you're sort of arguing or defending your position to be true. That's apologetics. And what is happening is the, the, the letter of, the, of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews. It was written to Jewish Christians, people who were Jewish in flesh, Jewish by nature, but Christian in their profession. And they were being pressured by Jews who remained in Judaism to go back to Judaism. So, we have Christians, Jews, who are being pressured to go back to Judaism, to abandon this new Christian thing and go back to the faith of their fathers. And so, the author of the Hebrews wrote this letter to essentially explain and prove to them that there's nothing to go back to. He wrote this letter to show them that Christianity is superior to Judaism and that this new covenant we find ourselves in is superior to the old. The whole book of Hebrews is an argument as to why you should not be a Jew, not in religion. And and what you'll find throughout the book of Hebrews is it's very Christocentric, which means it's completely focused about Christ. Almost every single chapter, Christ is the focus. And so a summary of the book of Hebrews is this. Jesus makes the new covenant better than the old. Why should you not go back to the old covenant? Because you've got Jesus. Why is Christianity superior now to Judaism? Because we have Jesus. The whole book is about how Jesus and the covenant he brings is the fulfillment and the better covenant from the old. And what we also were going to see in the text is that these Jewish non-Christians, they had to do something with Jesus, right? They, they, they didn't live in 21st century America where you can get away with just chalking them up to legend. They were, they, they were there, They had to do something with Jesus, and when we read the the writing, the literature of the Jews of this day, we know that many of the Jews already had this very unbiblical, bizarre exaltation of angels. They started seeing angels and talking about angels in ways that the scriptures never presented them. And so it was really easy for people to try to chalk Jesus up as just being one of these superior angels. So they, they recognized there is something unique about this guy, but... I mean, not enough to abandon our religion over him. So he's he's an angel. He's just this great angel. So what you're going to find in Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll read the text and and prove it in a second, is that the argument of Hebrews chapter 1 is essentially this. The author has set out to prove that Jesus is far greater than an angel. He is far superior to any mere man or any angel. And what we're going to find is the reason he's superior to angels is because he is the God who created the angels. And I'm also, uh, I know this is a bit of an extended introduction, I'm going to ask you to do something else that I've never asked you to do. The, the book of Hebrews is unique in another way in that um, it's written, I, I, I don't know Greek language, but I've read enough books about it to be able to confidently tell you that it's written in a, a, a what we call high Greek. In other words, if you knew Greek and you read the book of Hebrews alongside the rest of the New Testament, you would say whoever wrote Hebrews is an academically trained, brilliant scholar. Hebrews is very difficult Greek. It's high Greek. It's, 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 it's very um, academic and, and sophisticated. And on top of that, just the, the thought process of the Greek language, they say it's just incredible. And even if you, when you read it in English, people will often tell you, theologians will tell you, that Hebrews is one of the most sophisticated theological books in our Bible as well. You try reading through the book of hebrews. That's the kind of book that it's you're, you're gonna you're gonna need secondary material you're, you're gonna need help. It's it is loaded So the book of hebrews is, is astonishing in in many many ways In in both how it was written and both what is written in it It's it's pretty amazing and one of the things we find interesting about hebrews is we don't actually have pinpointed exactly who wrote it the author is still anonymous uh, and, and there are a lot of amazing theories out there. Uh, we, we can't definitively say one, so I won't present any of them. But, but there, there is one that's fascinating. There's one theory that Luke wrote it, but it was a sermon that Paul gave. And they say that because Luke's, the, 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 Luke's, the books um, in the Bible that Luke wrote, he was a doctor, so he's very educated, so he also wrote with high Greek. So they think, oh, this sounds like Luke in its style, but the theology is very Pauline. So that's kind of where that comes from. I have no idea if that's true. But the only thing that makes me think there might be some uh, uh, legitimacy to it is the way the Hebrews chapter 1 begins is it certainly sounds like something that was orated. It sounds like this amazing lecture. As a matter of fact, uh, I was on Twitter the other day and someone posted a thing that said, tweet this with your favorite introduction to any book. Like not, not your favorite book, but what's the best way a book has ever started? And I picked this. So I'm going to ask you to do something that I haven't done. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word today. I just think Hebrews chapter one is something we need to stand for. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through 14. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having as become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. So as I gave in my lengthy introduction, The author of Hebrews is proving the supremacy of Christ by proving the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is God. And what we are going to see is that he gives three reasons, scattered throughout, three different lines of argument to prove that Jesus is God. And and he structured the way the author of Hebrews structures it. I, I won't structure it the same way. He makes his argument in verses one through four. Right? Verses one through four serves. Here's the argument. Here's what I believe about Christ. And then knowing he's writing to Jews who are being pressured to go back to Judaism, he does what he should do. And he then after making his argument, he proves it from the Bible. He says, here's who Jesus is one through four. And then five through 14 is, and here are all my Bible verses to support that. So the author of Hebrews is using scripture to prove a point that he believes about Jesus. So to to put it briefly, uh, even though we're in the new covenant, the, the author of Hebrews is not calling New Covenant Christians to unhitch themselves from the Old Covenant Scriptures. Even though they're in a New Covenant, he's still utilizing Old Covenant Scriptures to make points about New Covenant realities. So the Scriptures are not something we release from when we release to a New Covenant. But that being said, here are our three uh, ways, three categories, if you will, of, of proof of the divinity of Christ. The first one is Christ's divine position. Christ's divine position. The second is Christ's divine power. Christ's divine power. And the third one is Christ's divine person. Christ's divine person. Christ has a position that only God has. Christ has power that only God has. And Christ has a person or a nature that only God has. So let's begin with this concept of the position, Christ's divine position. We see in verse one, the author tells us that long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by who? His son. That baby born in Bethlehem was the son of God. Now, uh, I know of five, six, 700 page books written on just the concept of the title, the Son of God. We are not going to come close to exhausting its meaning and its usage in Scripture. But let me just give a a very, very brief introduction to how we see this unique relationship of God to Christ here. You see, Son of God is used in Scripture oftentimes as a very generic phrase. Romans chapter 8 describes all Christians as being sons of God. Everyone in here is a son of God. And in Genesis, the angels are referred to as sons of God. So, angels are sons of God. Christians are sons of God. There's even a very generic sense in which everyone is. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul describes all people as being God's children by virtue of he's their creator. So, there's even a somewhat of a case to be made that maybe everyone is, in some sense, a son of God. It can be used specifically, but when it comes to Jesus Christ, it is always used in a unique way. He is never presented as a Son of God. He's presented with the definite article He's the Son of God. He is the Son. And we see Him all throughout Scriptures having this incredibly unique relationship to God the Father that he is not just a son of God, he is not just someone who's been adopted into God's family, but he is eternally, as John 1 tells us, face to face with God, serving as the son. By referring to him as the son, the author of Hebrews is reminding us that he has a kind of relationship to the father that no one else can claim. None of our children in here would we ever dare bring to the front and say, behold, the son of God. He has a unique relationship to the Father. This was foreshadowed all throughout the Old Testament. In Abraham, for example, Isaac was referred to in the Greek as Abraham's monogamous, his unique son. It's often translated in the New Testament as only begotten. But it can be translated lots of ways. Only begotten, unique, one and only. We see in John chapter one that Jesus is referred to as God's one and only son, his unique son, his only begotten, his monogamous. Jesus has a unique position to God the Father. And and, and one of the ways we see how unique his sonship is is what the verse goes on to say. It says in verse two, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things. This is amazing. You see, the Old Testament Jews had a tradition where the oldest son would be the one who inherited all of the father's possessions. So the Jews didn't really practice the writing of a will necessarily because it was already encoded in their system. Your oldest son, your unique son, your firstborn son, he got all of the father's possessions. And so here's how Christ's relationship to the father is so amazing. Christ is the one who inherits the father's birthright. Christ is the one whom the Father gives all of his stuff to. So God the Father is boss, right? He's, he's head of all the universe. He's head of all created things. And the text tells us that he then gives, he gives his stuff to his son. Jesus is the heir. He has inherited everything. In other words, Jesus has, can do something that no mere man No angel and no created being could ever do. And that's Jesus couldn't go anywhere in the universe, point at anything and say, that's mine. Every atom of the universe, that's mine. Every molecule, every nation, every person, every school, every family, every mountain, every ocean, every sea, every star, every galaxy, everything in all, created, in all the created universe has an invisible stamp that says property of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus owns everything. Anything that the Father can claim, he has given to the Son. He hasn't given that to you. As a matter of fact, there's a certain sense in which we don't own anything. We own things legally, right? The, 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 the Ten Commandments talk about not stealing which implies personal property we own things legally we own things in a horizontal sense but everything we own is ultimately a gift from God who created it, made it and owns it everything we own is actually on lease that's why I, I love in, in our culture wars on abortion one of the things that has often come up is this argument my body my choice there's a lot of ways to refute that lots of ways but here's just one of them it's not your body that's not yours Someone made you. Your body belongs to Christ. It's not yours. Jesus owns everything. He has inherited all things. This is a unique position. Who else in all the created universe can walk around and say, everything belongs to me? And remember, this is actually, as a matter of fact, the lordship of Christ we're talking about here, the supremacy of Christ, this is the heart and soul of evangelism. Because the Great Commission, our famous evangelistic text, does not say, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. That's not what Jesus said. That's half of what Jesus said. You want to know what else Jesus said before that? The foundation of that commission? All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go. You want to know why we have the audacity to walk into China and North Korea and preach the gospel even though their laws tell us we can't do that? Because that country doesn't belong to them. It belongs to the one who all authority in heaven on earth has been given to. You see, Jesus owns everything. And he owns it because he has inherited it from his father. And he inherited it from his father because he is the unique son of God. No one else can claim that kind of sonship. And as we see, he not only has this just by nature of who he is in relationship to God, but he has a unique, redemptive relationship as part of being his son. And here's what I mean by that. Look at verse uh, 3, the the, the third half of verse 3. So we're going to get to it again, the radiance of the glory of God, the imprint of his nature, upholding the universe. We're going to get to that. But here's what it says after that. It says, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now here's what's interesting about the quotation of the Old Testament from verse 5. Paul also quotes this in Acts 13, but he quotes this as, as and Paul very explicitly says, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of resurrection. So verse 5 is not talking about the kind of eternal sonship that I just got done talking about. That Jesus has always had this privileged relationship with God the Father. That's a different kind of sonship. The author of Hebrews is saying there's an additional quality to the sonship here. Is that because Jesus did the Father's will, he has been ascended to the right hand of God. And upon his resurrection, God says, today I have begotten you. So he has a redemptive relationship to the Father that no one else can claim either. That because Jesus purified, made purification for sins, he's now at the right hand of majesty on high, begotten of the Father. And and he proves this yet again from the Old Testament. Look at verses 13. Or me. look at verse 13. Verse 13 is a quotation from Psalm 110.1, which is the New Testament author's favorite Bible verse because it's the most quoted verse in all of the Old Testament. And look at what he says in, in the New Testament. Look at what he says in verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? Jesus is not only the son of God who has inherited all things. He's also the one who was sent to fulfill the will of God and has now been raised to sit at God's right hand and conquer the universe. He's subduing all enemies under his feet. The question is, is what man, what mere man, what mere angel could ever have the audacity to say that that's their job? Why why were you born? To ascend to the Father's right hand, to be his right hand man, and to conquer the universe and subdue all of them underneath my feet? Can you imagine the audacity of a person's claiming that? The audacity of a created angel claiming that? But that is Jesus' position ascended to the right hand of God the Father right hand that's a metaphor for God's. it's like when we call someone our right hand man to be at God's right hand what it means is that Jesus is God's military conqueror he did not ascend to God's right hand to rest he ascended there to reign Jesus has a unique relationship to the Father that only God could have He has a unique position that only God can have. But we see that not only does Jesus have this divine position, he also has a divine power. He has done things that no man, no angel could ever do. And we see that again going back to verse 2. In these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things. So part of why Jesus owns everything is because of his sonship to the father but there's another reason why he deserves all things and that's because he made all things. Whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. Through whom, it tells us that creation was the father's plan Creation was God's plan and God's desire, but the son was the agent. He enacted that through. So there is a true legitimate sense where we can speak of God the Father creating. Some of our creeds say that. That's a legitimate thing that God the Father created the universe. But a more specific way of of, of taking that truth and making it more specific is to say God the Father created through his son. Because that's what the text tells us. God the Father created through Jesus Christ, through whom he also created the world. Jesus, on behalf of the Father, created, and then my text says the world. Does anyone else's text say something different? Does anyone have a different translation that reads something different? Sometimes it might say the universe. Sometimes it might say ages. Worlds, plural, yep. Yep. So this is, this is a word that is difficult to translate in Greek and it's very common in our New Testament um, because it has multiple meanings and all of its meanings are usually relevant to its context. So sometimes it can be difficult in certain passages. Should this be ages? Should this be world? So for example, just one example, um, Satan in the New Testament is referred to the God of this. Some say world, some say age. Because it's the same word. And it's this word here. But here's what I think is interesting about Hebrews. No matter how you interpret it, it actually doesn't make a difference because clearly what we have here is what we call a synecdoche. A synecdoche is when a part represents the whole. Right? So for example, if you're watching a movie uh, based in medieval times, uh, a a servant might show up to someone's house and say, "Um, the crown has spoken and all people must pay their taxes. What does that mean the crown has spoken? Did kings in the medieval times have... Magical crowns that had mouths and vocal cords? No, the crown was a represent, it represented the whole kingdom authority. Or if, if, if you, maybe you need a favor and you might say something like, hey, Bill, could you, could you lend me a hand? Well, oftentimes you need more than just a hand. Sometimes you need a whole day's work, whole, your whole body. But your hand is representing your whole being. Can you do me a favor? So when, when he talks about Jesus creating the world, He's not trying to limit the creation of Christ to just the world. He's, he's, he's getting to the point that if Jesus created the world, then he created everything. Everything that's created is the work of Jesus' hands. He quotes the Old Testament, and, and, and that does help clear it up. Look at verses 10 through 12 speaking to the sun still from verse 8 speaking about the sun the Old Testament says you Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands the earth and the heavens all created, they will perish but you remain they will wear out like a garment like a robe you will roll them up like a garment they will be changed but you are the same and your years will have no end Again, Jesus is the creator of all the created order. And and just because these verses are so precious, I I don't mean to, to hammer this point too hard, but just briefly, turn to John chapter one. I just want us to look at two verses briefly to substantiate this further, and then we will apply it. John chapter one, the famous prologue to John's gospel, beginning in verse one, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Folks, that's incredible. That's incredibly detailed. That's incredibly specific. Here's what John is saying. Anything that isn't eternal, Jesus made it. If it had a created point, if at any point in time it was created, Jesus created it. If it's eternal, Jesus didn't create it. So, guess what that means? Everything except for Jesus Himself, God the Father, God the Spirit, is the work of Jesus' hands. If it's not in the Trinity, Jesus made it. Everything that was made, Jesus made. Apart from Him, nothing was made that was made. He is the agent that brought all things into existence. And turn again just because it's so beautiful to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it says in verse 15 of chapter 1 in Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He made all things and he's the reason all things were made. And so as we turn back to the book of Hebrews, I just, I rhetorically ask you, who else could make that claim? What mere man could say, I've created absolutely everything and I created them all for my own glory? What angel could possibly say, I have created all created things and I've created them for myself? No, that's a power that only God can claim. I mean, we have stars in our universe that are literally so big, we cannot put them to scale here on earth. Right, like, if you used a tenable, tennis ball to describe this star, you wouldn't have anything small enough to be an accurate scale. And, you, and, and, you, and they're so big, they're so big compared to Earth, you couldn't find one. The Earth itself is too small to serve as an accurate scale to show how big these stars are. We have stars hundreds of thousands of times bigger than our own. And Jesus spoke them. And then we have molecules and atoms which we can't even see without sophisticated technology and even then we're only going so deep. You know that atoms we've never even actually seen? They're actually a hypothesis? And and even if we go at the hypothesis, we've got nucleus and electrons and what are those? What are those made of? And whatever answer you give to me, I ask, well, what are those made of? We have this amazing mystery of huge things our minds can't comprehend, tiny things our minds can't comprehend, all the beauty in between, and Jesus spoke it. That's power that quite literally we can't fathom. That's power beyond our comprehension. That's a power that no angel possesses. That's a power that no mere man possesses. That's a power that God and God alone possesses. Jesus has a divine power. And notice this. It's, Jesus doesn't just create the universe. Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So it's not even if just Jesus just created like a dreidel, you know, he spun it and then just let it go. He is constantly in his sovereignty holding all things together. These are things we take for granted every day. You realize that science makes no sense without the lordship of Christ? How do you know tomorrow gravity is going to be the same? Why don't we wake up every morning going, oh, has gravity changed? How do you know? Well, because it's never changed in the past. That's not a justification for the future. You know, the Dallas Cowboys won their first four games this year. They had never lost in the past. Things always being this way is not a proof it will continue to be this way. How do you know the laws of physics are consistent and measurable and unchangeable? We have a justification because by the word of his power, Jesus upholds things and keeps it together. If Jesus lets it go, we go poof. Science only makes sense. Science is assuming that the universe is observable and consistent and measurable and the reason it is that way is because we have a sovereign God named Jesus Christ who is by his, the word of his power upholding it and keeping it consistent. Science only makes sense in the Christian worldview because we have a powerful, not an angel, we have a powerful, not a mere man, we have a powerful God. Jesus created the universe and he upholds the universe and that is something only God could ever dare to claim. Jesus Christ has divine power but The text gets even more explicit than that. The text just straight up tells us that Jesus Christ himself is a divine person. That Jesus Christ's very nature, his very essence is that of God. And we see it in multiple ways. Begin in verse three again. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Layla and I, when we got back from our trip, we were driving from Albuquerque to Roswell, and it was very late, so it was very dark. And when you're driving from, you know, from Vaughan to Roswell, there's not a lot of lights, so it's very dark. And so, obviously, I've got to have my brights on, or I can't see very well, but what do you, as a respectful driver who wants to keep yourself and everyone else safe, do when another car passes you, you need to shut your brights off? And what's fascinating is even though there's not very many hills on that stretch, there was some hills. And it was amazing because as I would go up the hill, I could tell if there was a car coming over the hill on the other side. I couldn't see the car yet. I couldn't see the headlights. I couldn't see the beams. But I knew that there was a car coming because there was this glow. It was like on the top of the hill there would be this, this, this glow. And I would turn my brights off. That fume, that glow, is the Greek word that the author of Hebrews uses here, that God has a glory and Jesus is the glow of that glory. Jesus is the glory of God. Every thought you have about God, and it's you think about his glory and his majesty, those are the thoughts you ought to have about Christ. He is the representation, the glowing, the light of God's glory. If you want to know how glorious God is, look at Jesus. He is the glory of God, the radiance, the glow of God's glory. Again, I ask who could possibly claim that, but he continues. Not only is he the radiance of the glory of God, but notice this amazing phrase. He is the exact imprint of his nature. The Greek word for imprint... Is karakter, where we get our word character from. And in the Greeks, it was often used to talk about two things that were exactly alike. A good, a good analogy in our day and age would be two photocop- a photocopy of something. We've got, one, we've got the original and we've got the copy, and how would we would describe them is a karakter. They're exactly alike. And it says that what they're exactly alike in is their nature. So here's what that tells us. Anything about God's nature that we conclude can also be concluded of Christ. If God is holy, then Christ is holy. If God is omniscient, then Christ is omniscient. If God is all-powerful, Christ is all-powerful. If God is eternal, then Christ is eternal. Why? Because Christ is the exact representation of his nature. That's why Jesus told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father we're exactly alike. If God the Father is God, if his very nature, if his very being is God, then what can you also say of the Son? Because the Son is the exact representation, the exact imprint of God the Father. Jesus is exactly like God. God. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. And notice, that is why, look at this famous Old Testament verse, and I, I, we're, we're, we're running very close to the end here, I promise, but we just have to see how he proves it. It's so glorious. Look at verse 7. He says in verse 7, here's, here's what God says of the angels. Remember, because verse 5, to which of the angels did God ever say? So all throughout this text, God is the one speaking. So we go to verse 7. So God is the one who says this about angels he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, quoting from this Old Testament. But of the Son, he says. So the Son is Christ, so who's the he speaking? Back in verse five. So God is saying this about Jesus. So you ready for this? Here's what God says when God looks at Jesus. Your throne, O God. In the Old Testament, where this is quoted from in the Hebrew, the word for Yahweh is used there. So guess what Yahweh is doing? Yahweh is looking at someone else and calling him Yahweh. And remember, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we know one thing. It was a monotheistic Jew. A Jewish person who believes in only one God is teaching us of Yahweh calling someone else Yahweh, but there's only one Yahweh. And now you're starting to see a little brief introduction to the Trinity. Because only the Trinity, the Bible makes sense of only the Trinity, nothing else. Because we have one God, yet the Father who is God is calling somebody else God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, so we have it again. The Son is God, and the Son has a God. God. Your God speaking to the Son, so your throne, O God, and then it says in verse nine, or free me, verse eight, your throne. I'm sorry, where is it? Yeah, the second half of nine. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. So Yahweh calls the Son Yahweh, and then Yahweh says, "I am the Yahweh to this Yahweh," and there's only one Yahweh. This is amazing. But again, what we have here is from the mouth of God himself, what should we refer to Jesus as being? God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So we see in Hebrews chapter one that Christ clearly has a divine position. He clearly has divine power and he clearly has a divine person, a divine nature. And so I just want to conclude briefly with this. There are ancient heresies that this text refutes very clearly. A heresy is, uh, is, is, is a damnable belief that someone says about Christianity which is untrue. And it's so severe, it actually excludes you from the kingdom of God. And this text refutes some of those important heresies. So this clu- conclusion is gonna sort of serve as our application, if you will. Uh, obviously, any person who claims Jesus is not God is refuted by this text. So secular humanists, Muslims, anybody who says Jesus is in no way God is refuted by these texts. But I want to give you just a couple popular ones that have recycled themselves in our modern day. So these are both ancient and modern. One of them is a very famous one known as Arianism. And Arianism is the belief which is recycled today in Jehovah's Witness theology. So in this third century, they were Arians. Today, they are Jehovah's Witnesses, but it's the same theology. Jehovah's Witnesses are Arians. And Arians essentially said this about Jesus. They said, yeah, he's, he is God, he is a divine being, but he's not the creator of all things. He is God's first creation, and then he created everything else. So they have sort of a third category. There's, there's men, angels, Jehovah, and then somewhere above the angels, but beneath God is this being known as Jesus, who is also Michael the archangel, allegedly. So they've kind of created this new category, that Jesus is created, and then he creates everything else. Well, how does this text refute that? Well, in two ways. First and foremost, the text tells us that all created things were created by Jesus. How did Jesus create himself? You have to exist before you can create. And if you exist prior to creation, you don't have to exist to create yourself because you already exist. You can't create yourself. So if Jesus is a created being, he cannot create himself. He could not be the creator of all things, but the text is very clear in Hebrews and John and Colossians that all things that were created, Jesus created. Itso facto, Jesus is not created. Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong. Jesus is an eternal being, not a created being. He's the creator of all created beings. And this is further proof because, again, what does the text say in verse 3 about the nature of God? Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. If God is eternal and Jesus is created, we no longer have an exact representation. We have a similar close, but the text doesn't say close. The text doesn't say he's a lot like God. The text doesn't say he's, he shares some of God's attributes. He is the exact representation of God's nature. If God is eternal, uncreated, then Jesus is eternal and uncreated. Arians, Jehovah's Witnesses, are wrong. And another important one is one we call, in our day and age, modalism. Modalism, it was historically referred to as Sabellianism, or sometimes Patripassianism. But modalism is essentially the belief that there is only one God, and that Jesus is God, Spirit is God, Father is God, but their God but but god sort of plays those roles individually at different times so an analogy is like imagine a closet and in this closet there's the father coat the jesus coat and the spirit coat and god will go into that closet and put one of the coats on and then he's god the father and he'll take it off and put on the son and now he's god the son so they would essentially modalists sabellians would say that jesus is the father they're the same person It's just God is sometimes playing the role of the father, God is sometimes playing the role of the son. Just like when Jesse goes to work, he's a teacher, but when he comes home, he's dad, right? He's playing different titles, playing different roles, but they don't see a distinction. But here's the problem, the text clearly makes a distinction. Jesus is being compared to the father, to God, at every step of the way. He is the radiance of the glory of God. So we've got God, and Jesus is the glory, the radiance of his glory, And again, verse eight, someone else is speaking to the son and simultaneously communicating and speaking to the son saying, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So again, this is where we get into the importance of Trinitarian theology, not modalistic theology. The father and the son have the exact same nature. They share the same being, but they are not the same person. The father relates to the son. The father speaks to the son. The son prays to the father. There's a distinction in person, but a clear shared being in this text. So we see, how, how do we apply this? How do I apply this? Well, just generally speaking, this text should just be so glorious that it doesn't need application beyond just adoring our great God and Savior. But I would just, for, to be fun, I would say this. Only Trinitarian Christians are able to celebrate Christmas rightly that person born in Bethlehem was not a mere man. That person born in Bethlehem was not a great angel. That person born in Bethlehem was not a created being. That person born in Bethlehem is the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, the person who has the exact imprint of the Father's nature, who is the radiance of the glory of God, who God himself refers to as Yahweh. God was born in a manger 2,000 years ago. What child is this? That child is God. We celebrate Christmas by understanding the baby born in Bethlehem was God himself. Pray with me. Father, we're thankful for your son. We are thankful that you have, as the text says, you spoke in prophets for all those years, but in these last days you have revealed yourself to us through the son. And that makes perfect sense because the son is the exact representation of your nature. The son, like you, is our God. The son tells us that if we see him, we see you, and he says that he is the only way to the father. He is the perfect representation of your being. He is the radiance of your glory. And so we come here to worship you by worshiping your son. It is through the glory and majesty of our creator, Jesus Christ, that we approach you with confidence. He is our God and we worship him. As the text says, let all God's angels worship him. Jesus is not an angel because we are not called to worship angels. We are not called to worship created beings, but humans and angels alike are called to worship the Son. So we come here to do that. We worship your Son. And in that process, we worship you. We thank you for the God-man. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our God. And it's in his divine name we pray, Amen. amen. Would you please stand?